Welcome to the Trigger Warning Talk podcast, where we have uncensored conversations. We exchange information. We provide resources for everyone who is a subscriber, who likes the podcast, who follows it, newcomers, everybody. This is a worldwide podcast. We are streaming on all major platforms. You can watch these episodes via Spotify and our YouTube channel, which is called Pension Pending Consulting Solutions, LLC. We discuss traumas. We talk about four main areas. We cover sexual-based offenses human and sex trafficking, domestic violence, and true crime. And at the end of every episode, we cover a missing person case. 99% of those are melanated folks because we want to bring the same energy and media attention to those that we don't typically see in mainstream media. That's intentional. We have done that from the beginning, and we're going to continue to do that from here on out. I got a special guest back for part two in the building. My sister, Natasha Khan, she's an educator on addiction and removing the stigma on mental health. She talks about so many things. You know, we have this series that we got going on called Silence Speaks Volumes. This is part two. We talk about addiction, identity, and recovery. First part was her story, talking about her background, dealing with that. She was coming up and some of the issues that she had and dealt with. Part two, we're going to focus on talking about identity, talking about the work that she does and did specifically with first responders. I got Natasha's information all in the show notes. She has a master's degree in counseling, psychology. She graduated cum laude. She also has a bachelor's in business management in her areas of expertise or substance abuse and treating dual diagnosis patients with inpatient mental health over the last two decades. She has such a long CV. Y'all can look at it because I got it up on the screen here. So y'all got to watch these podcast interviews. I keep telling y'all, watch these interviews. We're going to get stuff that you can't see if you're listening. But we love our listeners. So keep listening. Subscribe, follow, and tune in. Natasha Khan, what's going on with you? (laughs) You know, this is going to be thebomb.com. I love these part twos because I think for me, let me restate that. For me, part one is awesome because it introduces the person and their story, whether it's from a personal perspective and or a professional perspective. Part two, we really get into the meat and potatoes of the conversation, the work that that person does specifically. I want to jump into that because we talk about silence speaks volumes. For those that are new, for those that don't know, I am a retired paramedic and firefighter. That's why I call myself fire. So if you hear fire medic, that's me. I was an EMS since 2006, got in the fire in 2019. I retired as a COVID fire medic from my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri during the pandemic. I want to talk to you and I want to thank you first and foremost for coming back to the Trigger Warning Talk podcast. And it's all four words, folks. Trigger Warning Talk podcast. Natasha, how are you doing first and foremost? I am blessed and highly favored. So and I'm very honored to be invited back. And I love the fact that we're getting to have this conversation. So I'm excited. Look, I'm telling you, all check out part one because that was so good. I want to go right into the work that you have in your history working with first responders. First of all, tell us about that work. So in another life, I was blessed with the opportunity to work for an advocacy 
advocacy center uh, where we were specifically trained as investigators to, um, we were forensics investigators. So we got to work alongside law enforcement officials. Um, I was not living here in South Florida at the time. It was in Texas. And it was an, um, <clears throat> an opportunity and experience where we got to work alongside fellow officers and help in drug endangered environments. Um, so a lot of children are raised in drug endangered environments and or in domestic violence um, situations and exposed to a whole lot. And a lot of times um, there is no safe place for them oftentimes to go. And <clears throat> in times past, children would, if there is a situation at the house, law enforcement officials will come in and oftentimes children are pretty scared and law enforcement officials are trying to get information from the children about what's going on in the environment. Um, and the children just sometimes wouldn't open up and wouldn't speak about what was going on. So they developed a special unit where we were trained to specifically go in and work with these children so that we can help with those cases that law enforcement were battling with. Ideally at the end of the day to ensure those children were safe and or remove them from their household and place them in a safe environment. So I worked with law enforcement officials. I worked with the drug task force. I had worked with um, Child Protective Services at the time. Um, and it was a great team effort um, going into this. And at the end of the day, like I said, making sure that children were safe in or removed from those toxic environments. So that's ideally what I had done. I had done it for a very short time only because in the midst of all of that, I was going through personally my own divorce. Um, and that really um, took me by surprise because as a result of my job and um, working long hours, um, some days I worked, you know, three days on, four days off or vice versa. Um, a court, family court felt that I was not, I didn't have the stability that my children needed. And as a result of that, I ended up losing custody of my children on those grounds. So that really sort of messed with my head a lot and really affected me um, with my own mental health issues. Um, it increased my drinking as a result and use of pills, et cetera. And so I ended up coming out of the game earlier than I would have liked to, because I have to say out of any job that I've ever had in my 25 year career working in mental health, I really, really enjoyed um, working with law enforcement and being able to um, advocate for those who didn't have a voice. And ideally that is what I do for a living today is I empower individuals to have a voice. I empower them to find their identity and to be able to speak up for themselves because we all have a voice, but depending upon where we come from and what we've been through, oftentimes our voices are silent. So I want to give you a shout out to the work that you do with first responders. So thank you so much because that work is so important. Now I want to mention a word that a lot of people don't know or don't realize and unless you come from Missouri, specifically the St. Louis area, you will know what I'm talking about. So when I say hotlining, I'm talking about calling CPS or Child Protective Service because that's what we call it, hotline. So the work that you did with CPS specifically, uh, let's start there. When you would, how did you specifically do your work in terms of let me let me put myself in that situation because I've had to do that from a professional perspective. I got a call one time where there were two children who had been living with their dad and their mom, but they were living primarily with mom. Dad got them on the weekends. Dad had them Friday, brought them back to mom on a Sunday. Mom gets them back Sunday, 
and she notices that they have bruises on them. Not visible like on their hands or their arms or legs or anything like that, but she was changing their shirts. because These were like a little older than Tyler, so three to five. Uh, saw welts on her back and stuff like that. Nothing I would say that would be where they needed sutures or they were bleeding or anything like that, but obvious trauma to their skin. Sure. Called 911, called the cops. They showed up. Then we showed up. EMS showed up. We see them. I'm doing, and I'm the medic. I'm doing my primary assessment. I'm writing all these notes. We're taking pictures, all of this stuff. I immediately call my supervisor and tell them, I got a hotline this call. I got two patients, and it's going to be a while. So you might want to take us out, out of service or whatever. They said, well, can you run the call, do all the stuff that you need to do, and do the hotline when you get back at the end of your shift? I said, cool, no problem. But they did say, you know, of course, let the hospital know because it was a three-tier hotline setup. I reported, the hospital reports it, the police report it. And I'll, I'll say why that is. It needs to be that way because sometimes in a hotline situation, the onus typically is on the EMS worker, not law enforcement, and not even the hospital, which is surprising. <laughs> or... Some people think that it's on the hospital, not the EMS worker or law enforcement. I've learned that all three entities need to be involved in that process. And I can even expand it to the parents also because they are the catalyst for the hotline. They're the ones that initiate in most cases. And so the work that you did from once you got involved, how did you, how did you get involved in a hotline and call? So, so we were part, there's, so across the United States, um, there are different chapters of the National Alliance for Drug Endangered Children. It's called NADAC. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with that or not. Um, so the advocacy center that I worked for was part of that, one of those chapters. So we were involved in that hotlining process. So you could be getting a call from a school, that school call goes straight to Child Protective Services, or you know, a child goes straight from a home to a hospital, hospital calls Child Protective Services, Child Protective Services works with us, law enforcement also gets contacted. Like I said, it was a team effort. It was a beautiful system, because I agree with you 100%. Every, there's a multiple hands that went into the care of this situation, whether the child's in a domestic violence case, we dealt with a lot of sex crimes. So we dealt a lot with children being sexually abused or being someone being sexually inappropriate with, with minors in the home. Um, so we were always included, whether that call was coming from law enforcement, if that call was coming from Child Protective Services. Um, so the schools or the hospitals contacted either, and either agency then reached out to us in terms of what our next role was in this. Oftentimes, law enforcement or Child Protective Services will bring the child in, and this is where specific training, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you come up on a scene and you're, or you're at a house and, you know, you want to pull the children to the side and you want to talk to the kids. Oftentimes kids are so scared, especially when they see someone in uniform um, or they're just scared of what's happening in and around them. And a lot of times they, they don't open up. They tend to clam up. They tend to be really quiet. Um, so the way that we were trained, we create the advocacy center 
was a safe space. And I think that's really, really, really important for anybody. Um, creating a safe space and place for them to be able to come to. And then I would be in a private room where I had a team of people that was monitoring um, the interview that I was doing to make sure that I wasn't being suggestive anyway and, you know, trying to plant any seeds or words, you know, in that interview that it was very organic. And we're trained a specific way to interview these these minors. Um, I remember my my youngest client to be a she was somewhere between two and three years old that I had to interview, you know, Um and so we get the, we collect, we gather the, co the collateral information to find out exactly what was going on. That then gets handed over to law enforcement. Law enforcement then does what they need to do with that. That investigation could take anywhere from weeks to months um, before we then have to go to court. And a lot of times um, I had to testify in court based on that interview in order to help those children um, ensure that they don't return to that environment. Sometimes, depending upon the severity of the information that we gather, those individuals, those children were removed out of those homes by via CPS um, rather than waiting till the investigation was over. So when you talk with these individuals, and the reason that I brought it up specifically is because this multi-tiered approach, sometimes if you don't have that, and I would say every time that you don't have two or more entities hotlining in one particular case, and I'm talking case by case. Hmm. Sometimes people will say, the EMS side will say, oh, I told the hospital uh, they'll go ahead and report it because I got to do all these damn calls or whatever. You know, I got to, you know, I'm working a 12-hour shift. I'm doing probably 14 calls, 8 to 14 calls in a 12-hour shift. I just don't have the time. I'll do it when I get off or what have you. Sometimes that is a failure which is a huge failure because we're all mandated reporters. So mm -hmm. you, your supervisor can't tell you, uh, you know, let the hospital do it. You, you're going to be too busy or whatever. You know, they, they can't tell you that. Your supervisor cannot tell a mandated reporter not when to man call a, a hotline situation. That is just against the law. Like, you're going to lose your mm -hmm. license at worst. You might just get suspended, but that's a mark on your record. It's a huge mark. So the other thing is, you know, the hospital, typically they will do the report. But the more people that call, the more eyes that are on it, the more it's going to get investigated. Because sometimes people, we're humans. Sometimes we just drop the ball, unfortunately. And I, we, we, you and I probably got horror stories on when the ball got dropped and the fallout for that. We can talk about it. I so. think one, of, if I can add, I think one of the things that I loved about working, you know, being a part of that um, NADAC chapter and working with law enforcement and child protective services, we met once a week. We met once oh, a week wow. for all of our cases. We went to the local um, law enforcement agency and all, there was a representative, someone from the district attorney's office, someone from law enforcement, whether we needed someone from the task force, someone from child protective services, and then myself and other investigators um, that were part of the um, interviewing process. So we would sit down with those cases once a week to ensure that everybody had their hand um, involved and that everybody knew what was going on from their point of view, right? And then to be able to have a plan and make an, and have a multidisciplinary approach to how they were gonna be handling that case moving forward. Okay. And so I, I just thought it was a, a, a beautiful thing. And I don't know that it happens throughout the United States and in, in all cities or counties, um, but there are several chapters in the state of Texas. Um, and I just 
I loved the idea of our egos not getting in the way and somebody thinking that they know more than the other person or they need to handle it or passing the buck. And I'm not saying that anybody does that intentionally. But if when we have heavy caseloads and workloads and we are busy in our days, like you said, things tend to get slipped, you know, fall through the cracks or hand it off. And we're under the assumption that somebody else is handling that when oftentimes they might not be. It might be sitting on someone's desk or it might just be sort of, you know, lingering in the air. Right. Absolutely. So I, I just and when I left working with law enforcement and child protective services, even as a clinician and working in the treatment industry, I, I wholeheartedly love a multidisciplinary approach. So even as a clinician, I cannot effectively treat a client without making sure that I'm meeting with the doctor and making sure that I'm meeting with the nurses, making sure that I'm meeting with the CEO and the COO of the company. Everybody needs to be involved. So everybody is fully aware. We're all on the same page and we're all marching forward together and nobody's left behind. I mean, that's just the way I've been trained and that's what I've learned and it's the only approach that I know. And I, I will not work anywhere if there's not a multidisciplinary approach. So it's just like me. I will not be involved if it's just a dialogue only conversation. There has to be at minimum an action plan. 100%. Otherwise, you've heard me say it. Leave me out. I'll sit on the couch binge watching something on Netflix <laughs> and picking the lint out of my belly button because it does not work. And you're talking about stuff slipping through the cracks. Some of these cracks are crevasses. And this can yeah. be the difference between life and death and yes. or the quality of life for these individuals dealing with these adverse childhood experiences, eases, these traumas, what heck. So this is the Trigger Wanna Talk podcast. We're sponsored by Spotify Podcasters. We're produced by my company, Pin Pin and Consulting Solutions LLC. Got our special guest back in the building, Natasha Khan. This part two in our Silent Speaks volume series, we're focusing on identity. And we're talking about how in your tenure, Natasha, you worked with identifying some of these problems in law enforcement with first responders and the work that you did with Child Protective Services. I want to jump to the next part of that conversation. So I'm still the guinea pig. So. I do my part, get the patient to the hospital. I tell the attending nurse or the charge nurse, maybe even the attending physician, because I would go all the way up. Like, I didn't play around. And a lot of times in a, a hotlining situation, everybody and their mom, like, I'm on the, when I do my radio report, typically my radio reports were 30 seconds to a minute long. What I found, what I did in our ETA. Okay. And I, hey, I need everybody and their mama in in the, the room that we're going to be assigned to the nurses, the doctors, you know, get case management involved, social work, whomever, like psych nurses, all of that stuff. Like I want everybody and their mama in that room while we're pulling up in the ambulance space. So we get to the ER, get in the room. Some people are there or everybody's there. I'm, I'm like, because I, I don't want to tell my story or my report 50 times. I want It's just like when we do a cold stroke, I yeah. want everybody right there when we pull in so I can get one report to everybody that's right there. That was my philosophy. That's how I did it. Where do you come in from that perspective in terms of you're more of the post care in terms of once the person gets out of the the hospital, and I'm just talking about the patient, but you work with the first responders. So 
when you would meet with them once a week? And my question specifically is, how did you bridge that gap between the patient and the first responder in the hospital or outside of the hospital? Well, there was always a, there's always after every situation, a debriefing, right? Um, there's a debriefing with your law enforcement officials. There's a debriefing with your child protective service um, social workers that, that are there. Um, I, I think the debriefing and the debriefing wasn't led by me, right? It was led by the chief or the captain or whomever. But I think the debriefing is super important because it's given people an opportunity. First responders have a lot of responsibility that they that they have to endure on a daily basis sometimes a minute to minute basis. So the ability to have an opportunity to debrief and to be able to talk to someone and to process through what they've experienced or what they're going through, um, I think speaks volumes and makes a difference in how they're effectively going to be able to do their job, right? So- Will you explain debriefing for the- uh, <laughs> My understanding a- of it, sure. So my understanding of a debriefing is, you know, after an incident or after um, whatever call they might've been on, that they're able to come back and speak to fellow officers and to their captain and kind of walk through what they, what happened, what they experienced. Um, if there was any missteps, if there's anything they could have potentially done differently. Um, right. So we're looking at a, sort of a reflection on the incident and how it went down. Did we do everything we knew that we needed to do? Could we have done things differently and also checking in with ourselves and making sure that we are mentally and emotionally okay before we go back out there onto our next call, right? Because if we're not doing that, then our law enforcement officials, the same is true for military, um, any first responder, EMTs, firefighters, if you're just going from one call to another and you're not having those debriefs at the end of your shift primarily, um, these are things that you're just, and this happens to any human being. So if I can just maybe step outside the law enforcement um, or first responder space for just a second. For any human being, when you have gone through an experience, especially that one that is traumatic or difficult for us to experience, if we don't process it, if we don't talk to another person about it and be able to share what our thoughts and feelings was openly without judgments or criticisms or someone telling us that we shouldn't feel that way and we shouldn't think that way, then all we're doing is harnessing all of what we've experienced, right? And once I continue to harness what I'm experiencing and with every experience that continues to happen, that will eventually take a toll on me psychologically and emotionally and eventually long-term will affect my performance on the job, right? So the debriefing is just an opportunity for us to really pick things apart and take a closer look at what was done, how it was done, could it be done better next time, what we could do differently. Um, and again, ideally ensuring that the, the first responder is also, do they need to, based on what they've experienced, do they need to go see someone? Do they need to talk to someone privately? Do they need to get evaluated and or checked out? Because we, every person is so different. You know, you and I, Larry, could be on a scene for some reason and you could walk away from that and say, you know, you're good and everything is fine and you can move on. Meanwhile, it might have triggered something in me and it might have impacted me completely differently. And I may need to go talk to somebody about that. Right. That's, that's absolutely. I think we. I think we need to be super careful of oftentimes thinking that just because one person is able to walk away from a situation, you know, okay, and I put that in quotes, um, that everybody else is okay. I think it's important to, when we do a debrief or we're checking in with our team, that we're checking in with them, not just collectively as a team, but also as individuals. 
On the screen here, this is why it's important for people to watch these interviews also. I went to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which is the government's website, OSHA, which most people call. So it's OSHA.gov. I brought up their information about critical incident stress guides. And what we're talking about is debriefing, but specifically we're talking about critical incident stress debriefing. And there's another term called critical incident stress management. So what Natasha was talking about is what we do to help our mental health as far as first responders after a traumatic call. It could be a medical and or a trauma call because we cover things like trafficking, domestic violence, sexually based offenses, true crimes. All of this stuff that we're talking about covers everything that we talk about here in the Trigger One and Talk podcast. And we're focusing part two on identifying these triggers for first responders who are responding to some of these hotlines or CPS calls. And so it talks about, and I'm just going to read the difference between as the government defines critical incident stress management, and they say it's a system of education, prevention, and migration of the effects from exposure to highly stressful critical incidents. It's handled most effectively by specially trained individuals such as crisis intervention specialists in critical stress, critical incident stress debriefing is a facilitator led group process conducted soon after a traumatic event with individuals considered to be under stress from trauma exposure. When structured, the process usually, but not always, consists of seven steps, introduction, fact phase, thought phase, reaction phase, symptom phase, teaching phase, and reentry phase. During group processes, participants are encouraged to describe their experience of the incident and its aftermath followed by a presentation on common stress reactions and stress management. This early intervention process supports recovery by providing group support and making and linking employees to further counseling, seeking help. So we've got to talk about the mental health component and we're gonna really deal in with that in part three. And linking employees to further counseling and treatment services if they become necessary. Now, the reason that I bring that up and that the reason why we're talking about that in particular is I am a first responder, but you know what I am first and foremost? I'm just a person. Yep. This is just flesh and blood. At the end of the day, when I, I was working for a fire department, a fire protection district, and I worked for a private EMS service back in my hometown, St. Louis, Missouri. I was doing 48-hour shifts, two days on, four days off, like you were talking about, 72 on, four days off. I couldn't even imagine having a conversation with Mrs. LP that excluded my mental health issues as it related to work. I would come home and, and before we even got married, I told her, I said, we had a conversation. Let me strike that. I didn't tell her. We had a conversation. <laughs> I said to her, when I go to work, I want to come back the same way I left, healthy, happy, and whole. That might be impossible due to the nature of this beast that we call EMS, first responder. I got to deal with people that are hurt, injured, dying, and dead. And depending on where you work as an EMS provider, as a first responder, if you work in an urban environment, suburban environment, or rural environment, typically if you work in an urban environment, you're going to deal with more of those things because you have more of a populace. 
And if you specifically in an urban environment like a St. Louis, the murder capital of the U.S., as it's been for decades, you're going to deal with that a lot more than if you live in a rural part of St. Louis. When I would get a call like a hotline and situation work because LP loves to call the kids. So when I got that call with those two top, those two uh, three to five-year-old boys with all the welts on their back, and they're looking at me like, I, I'm, I'm trying not to get choked up right now. When they looked at me like my daddy whooped us because he was mad about them doing something that was so minor, it was, it was fucking ridiculous. I'm just going to say and I'm telling you, Natasha, it was really one of those things where I was like, I need a moment after that call. You know, kind of like the movie Bridges of Madison County. I need a moment, Richard. I had one of those moments. So I sat in the ambulance uh, as my partner was straightening up the truck. I was sitting in the front, riding shotgun side, as we call it. I had to do some woosah because that whole time that I was involved in that call, I want to be somebody's ass. I'm just, I'm just gonna tell you, like, <laughs> I've been there. I'm ready to war. I'm not gonna even, I'm not gonna even play. I was ready to whoop some ass. Like, I was so glad. And I told my partner, I said, and the, and the police, the two officers that showed up, I said, I am so glad he is not here right now. Y'all can take it as y'all want it. If you want to write it up that I said that, I don't give a damn. I'm so glad he's not and talking about the dead that he's not here right now. So I'm a five. I got five boys and one girl with my ex-wife. CISD, you are that person that facilitates. You are that person that gets involved with people like me because for a moment, I thought I was going to have to call someone like you and say, you know what? I need to talk. And I probably should have, honestly. In hindsight, I should have called someone like you, Natasha Khan. So so can I interject why it would be important in that moment to, to, to reach out for that help? Because for every call that you go on from that point on will continue to trigger you. You will continue to feel some type of way. And we see it a lot. I have seen a lot of cases with law enforcement officials when people are recording and saying this law, this law enforcement officer, look what he's doing to this person. And let me, let me preface this before I get into it. I am not saying that what the officer does in harming another human being is right or okay. I guess. But when you look at the way they sometimes let loose on on a civilian, yeah. it is years, years right. of pent up thoughts and emotions and experiences because as first responders, we are trained to rescue. And although we are trained to rescue, that feeling of powerlessness and that inability to be able to truly step in and truly save and rescue someone is something that we have to constantly work on every day. Right. right. And so what you were experiencing in that moment was powerlessness. And so if every time you experience powerlessness and you're not having, you don't have a way to channel that, you don't have a way to express that. You don't have a way to release that and to be able to deal with the emotions that are attached to that, that will eventually get worse. And two things are going to happen. It's either going to, as it builds up, it's either going to come out, as I say, come out sideways and somebody's going to catch your wrath and they're going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, or we're going to implode. We're going to end up being harmful to ourselves. It's going to cause psychological issues. 
right? It's going to add to more emotional stress. The emotional stress is going to increase any mental health issues you had. If you didn't have a mental health issue before, you're going to have one as a result of the line of work that you're in and not having that outlet for you to be able to express your thoughts and feelings about what it is that you're seeing and doing, et cetera. I'm so glad that you said that. Here's another part of the conversation that I had with Mrs. LP years ago when we got together. I said to her, she is a project manager. She works for a Fortune 100 company. I said, there are going to be times when I come home, and this is every time when I would come home off of the fire shift. She'd tell me about her last 48 hours. She would always, I would always have her go first. You know, ladies first. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not going to apologize. I'm just saying. This. You, know, I'm, you know, it's not all blood and guts on this podcast. You know, we we interject some humor. But I'm just, I'm serious. But yeah, so I'm a gentleman. You go first. I want to hear about Jordan. She would, and the reason, part of the reason I did that, because she always felt like the work that I did was way more important than the work that she does. Because she still is a project. And so I'm like, Look, work is work. I'm just saying, you know, like we're not gonna, we're not gonna do that. So she tell me about her day. Oh, you know, I had these people not meeting their payrolls, deadlines, and all this stuff, and they weren't submitting these files, these Excel spreadsheets. Like I told them, and I gave them this whole checklist of doing this and that, and checking this box off, and all this stuff, or whatever, you know, project manager stuff. Then she gets to me. It's, it's my turn. I had a call where. We had these two twins that were born, and one of them we had to do CPR on for an hour. Mm. Couldn't, couldn't resuscitate the kid. Had a call where this kid was trying to make money in the summertime. You know, this was summertime, and he was cutting grass in the neighborhood. Cut off some of his toes because he didn't have a proper foot. He was one of flip open toe flip flops. Young teenage kid. Devastated him. Devastated him. I could go on and on and on and on and on. I said, that that was my 48-hour shift. That might have been a call back-to-back. The kid, the two kids that we had the hotline about. You know, so I, I brought that up to her because I said to her, I'm not going to give you the blood and guts. I still will talk to you about my experiences because I'm going to be leaning on you to help me keep my mental health in check. Because we see traumas all the damn time. And because trauma is part of the nature of the beast, if you can't handle that, a lot of times your supervisors, the white shirts, the red shirts, the whomever that's in charge will say, you might want to consider doing something else. If you work a 12-hour shift and you got 8 to 14 calls, so you're running back to back to back to back, in an urban environment where every call is a gunshot, is a car wreck, is a house fire, is an abuse situation, is a domestic intimate partner situation, is a trafficking call back to a gunshot, back to a gunshot, back to a stabbing. You know, that's my whole 12 hours. And I'm doing this every damn day or every shift, Mm -hmm. every damn day, every damn shift. But you know, it's, it's, I'm, I really admire to hear that you would seek your wife out as someone to lean on because in, in my, the latter, latter part of my career working as a clinician, a lot of first responders don't, you know, and we're taught and trained to not bring that stuff home. 
right? There are certain things you can't even talk about. I worked in sex crimes. So there were a lot of things that we heard and saw that, you know, and against with HIPAA, same thing with, you know, client confidentiality. Um, and so whether it, that's the reason why you're not bringing it home or some just don't want to, they don't want to bring that home to their families, right? They want to kind of keep that separate. But I admire the fact that you were willing to include your wife because I've worked with a lot of women of first responders that feel isolated and they feel disconnected from their partners because they're not able to ask, how was your day? Or they're not able to hear, you know, and you're right. They don't need to hear the gory details, but I encourage the first responder clients that I do work with to allow yourselves to open up to your partners. They, they, they're not there to solve the problem. They're not there to, again, they don't need to know the details but just give them a snippet of a day in the life of what it's like for you because they can, they will understand. And as a result of them understanding you, they will then be willing or knowing how to support you in a way emotionally that you will need for your mental health. Right. And I think a lot of people are mistaken by that. They're like, well, I don't want my wife to know. I don't want my husband to know. I don't want to burden them that with that. They don't need to know what I'm exposed to. And to a degree, I respect and understand part of why they do not bring that home. But there's another part where their their partners at home are on an island by themselves and feel like the and that creates a lot of disconnection in, in marriages. And that's oftentimes why you see a lot of those relationships fail. Which leads to what? DV, intimate partner violence, sexual yep. based offenses. This yep. is why we're having this discussion on. Yep. Part two of Silence Speaks Volumes with Natasha Khan talking about identity because we want to identify these triggers from law enforcement professionals that she has dealt with in her tenure. It's not just the shit that happens on the job because, like you said, you're going to bring it home one way or the other. You're going to bring it home in a positive way or you're going to bring it home in a negative way. I chose to bring it home in a positive way because I want to do everything that I can to eliminate domestic violence in my home. That's, yeah. that's, we talk, safety is always number one priority, right? So that's part of my safety protocol. What do I need to do to make sure I'm safe and she's safe and we're safe? Because at the end of the day, it's just me, you and the dog. Yeah, let's, let, if I can, if I can add and be clear to that, you know, a lot, this, I want, for those that are listening and if there are first responders listening, we're not, um, there's a lot out there that would never put their hand on a woman or a woman would never put her hand on a man, right? Um, we're not saying that you're an abuser, but you can become one. Um, because like I said, if you're storing that degree of pain and whatever it is that you're experiencing from work, from your work environment, you're holding on to that and you don't have an outlet, the only person that spends more time with you when you're not at work is your family, so your family is going to impact, be impacted by it one way or another, right? And that abuse may not come in the form of physical. It's not always physical, but sometimes it's verbal. Sometimes it's your silence. Sometimes it's your disconnect. Let me say that again. It's your, <laughs> this episode is titled Silence Speaks Volumes. That's part of the reason that we're doing yep. this because it's not just the physical. I don't have to lay you out. Correct. I cannot speak to you. You know, like they say, sticks and stones. I'm sorry, I interrupted. I'm so my ADD. You're good. <laughs> You're good. Sticks and stones might break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And the nine words hurt even more. Please yep. go. 
No, no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I I my first marriage um, after well, we got divorced at the 13 year mark. So I want to say probably around nine or 10 years of our marriage um, started on a decline because of there was no talking. We came home and we were like roommates, you know, Um, we would. Yes, we might eat at the certain time or we might not eat at a certain time, but there was no conversation. There was no connection. And now that leads to dependency issues. And that may be a conversation we have for another day. But emotional disconnection leads to dependency Oh, let's issues. talk about it. We, we, we got time. Okay. Yeah, we got so time. We, have, we oftentimes, I see a lot of, a lot of um, officers, um, first responders that are emotionally disconnected. They emotionally disconnect from what's going on at work. And I okay. get it. It's it's a safety mechanism in the mind, right, to protect ourselves because we fail to realize that I don't care how strong you are physically, right, and how fit you are. Mentally, the mind can only handle so much emotional stress, right? So there comes a point where we will psychologically, emotionally disconnect from what we're you're experiencing at work. Well, your emotional disconnect or your psychological disconnect is not a light switch, so you don't get to disconnect at work and then come home and then flip the switch on and then you're going right. to be able to emotionally connect at home. Once you get to that place where you're emotionally disconnected, it is going to take work and it's going to take communication and effective coping skills to teach you on how to reconnect emotionally with your partner. And now your partner's suffering in silence and you're suffering in silence because you don't want to talk about your feelings. You don't want to talk about what you've experienced. You don't want to burden your loved one. Your loved one's wondering what's going on. They feel like they're in the dark. And so now you're sitting, you're living in this house and it's like, okay, what's really going on here? Right? Your loved one's fearful to say anything. Now they find themselves walking on eggshells. You're like, well, I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to burden you, but I don't know what else to do with how I'm thinking and feeling. And a lot of times people will use to mind and mood altering substances. Some will use food. Some may use sex and pornography. They will find other ways as a means to cope and distract themselves from what it is that they're thinking and or feeling about what they're experiencing at work. And it, it's, it's a huge epidemic. And, you know, I talked about the debriefing thing earlier and I, I'm, and I don't know that it's consistent throughout all agencies. I just think, I work with another group of individuals, law enforcement officers, that a lot of times, oftentimes on the job, they don't feel like they're heard. They don't feel like they're getting the help that they need. And it, oftentimes, most of these men and women are not seeking mental health treatment and or help till after they have left their job. And that blows my mind. I don't understand why it is they have to wait till they retire or wait till they resign to get the help to treat their mental health. Why is that not offered to them? Or why do they not feel safe enough to be able to, if there are services, to utilize those services while on the job? I can answer that. I can answer that right now because I was actually seeing Natasha. We got so we just can see. <laughs> you you kind of read my mind, and you're. I didn't mention that you're a podcaster, and we're gonna talk about that uh, when we wrap up. The reason that first responders don't talk about it immediately and they typically wait till they retire to let it all out is because it's the nature of the beast. As I was saying, as you know, like, again, I'll be the guinea pig. I held the shit in because the nature of the job. I've seen and I know of situations where, and I'm going to show a graphic, and again, please, 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 did I say please? 
please watch these podcast interviews because you're going to miss some of the stuff. You will hear it, but seeing it brings it home. To answer your question, Natasha, we don't have these detailed conversations during our tenure because we don't want the possibility of our bosses, our supervisors, those that are in charge to look at us and say, you know, you you might need to change your job, bro. You know, you might need to change careers because if you can't handle this shit, no problem. Somebody's always going to fit the bill. You know, and we got this Superman complex. We got this superhero complex. We feel like we can take it all. We can handle it all. Like we are one cell amoebas. Like we're cyborgs. Like we just. Say, it's almost so. Based on what you're saying, it's almost that like we're forced to be that cyborg or to be that superhero. I think it just it hurts my heart because I think that so many men and women out there that are in the role as a first responder are doing an amazing job. And they are very good at what they do. I think we lose sight of the fact that they are human and we have these expectations or put expectations on them that they're supposed to go out there and deal with these heinous and traumatic experiences and then just be able to come back and just go home and go to bed and get up and do it all over again and act as if it doesn't have any kind of impact on them as human beings. And so now we're forced to put on this facade to be the superhero or to be the cyborg and to be untouchable and nothing touches us and nothing phases us. You're a human being. And as long as if I cut you, you bleed red blood, right? You are a human being. And that means you have emotions. You know, I had someone, one of my clients asked me the other day, she goes, does everybody have emotions? And it was a legitimate and serious question. And the question's being asked because for such a long time and for decades, People don't tap into how they're feeling. They don't take a minute to think about how they're feeling. They've gotten so accustomed to repressing their emotions, shoving their emotions down, numbing it, not talking about it, not allowing themselves to feel it. And we, again, we disassociate or we disconnect from our emotional selves. And most people in the line of a first responder, I'm not going to say all, so please don't come for me, right? Sure tend to operate from a logical and rational place. We are trained that in in the field and on the job, we can't wear our emotions on our sleeves. And I get that. But no one speaks about that after we're done with that scene, after we're out of the field that day. Can I can I have a minute? Can I go ahead and check in to see where I'm, you know, where I'm at and how I'm feeling? We're not taught that. So we tend to stick to one mentally, we go to this one side of our brain where we're logically thinking everything through, but you're still human and you still have emotions. And what's happened is all of that emotion is now repressed, right? Now, I, I always use the analogy, think of your emotions being repressed like water to a sponge. Your okay. brain is the sponge, right? Your emotions is the water. If you soak a sponge, it gets to a point where there's only so much water it's going to hold and it's going to start to drip. Your brain is no different when it comes to being emotionally stressed and emotionally overwhelmed. So you can shove and repress and stuff your emotions all you want or act like you don't have emotions or nothing fail, uh, phases you, but you're human and it's, it's happening. It's happening whether you like it or not. And eventually that will come out sideways and it oftentimes will come out in the form of some, some form of a mental health issue. Um, pretty common is anxiety, Right social anxieties, not wanting to be out in public, finding ourselves to be withdrawn, um, dealing with depression or depressive symptoms and isolating ourselves, right? 
And that list goes on. And it could, some people have bipolar or have ADHD and it's not even treated because you mentioned something earlier. Your, your, your superiors learning about that or knowing about that could land you a desk job, right? You know, even though you may be on medications and you might be treated and you're functioning, it may land you a desk job or land you the, not getting the opportunity to be able to be a first responder. And so this is why I'm such an advocate for mental health. We all struggle one way or another, whether you want to, whether you want to admit it or not, we all are struggling. Can we just come together and figure out how to work through this and still be able to hold our jobs and still be able to do our best if we have the space to be able to speak freely about who we are and where we are and, you know, what we need to do to get better. I could, I could be on a soapbox about that all day because I, as a first responder myself, I knew how hard it was like when I was dealing with my personal life. And we haven't even talked about that yet. We're talking about the problems on the job. What about the guy or girl that's having problems at home? So you got problems at home. You got problems on the job. What am I supposed to do now? And that is something that unfortunately took me out. You know, as a result of having those personal problems at home, my drinking increased. You know, and after a 72-hour shift, after working three days straight, me and the guys and the girls, we got together and we went to the bar and we hung out. And I, not my proudest moments. And, you know, I don't know who may choose to snub their nose at me, but I didn't know where else to go. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't think going to a professional at the time um, was something that I needed to do. I talked with my fellow officers and, you know, CPS workers. And that's kind of how we dealt with it. That was our culture. That was our community at that time. And while everybody else, you know, survived it, I didn't, you know, because of my history, and you heard my story before of having a history of um, depression and anxiety in my past, um, the drinking just made that worse, right? But I didn't know that in that moment. I was just drinking because I'm every day, I'm listening to a little boy or a little girl being sexually abused or being taken advantage of, or be, someone being an adult being sexually inappropriate with a child, Right. Children being abused, physically abused when their parent, when the mother's not home or the father's not home. Like that just sickens me to no end. Absolutely. And I didn't have an outlet for that other than the people that was on my team that I can talk to. All we had was each other, you know, and alcohol was just my go to. And it worked for a period of time till it wasn't working anymore. And so between the personal problems and the work problems, um, it all forced me eventually to get into therapy. And that's why I went back to school and I got my counseling degree. And, and now I want to work with first responders because I can relate and understand the depths of their pain and knowing that they need help as well. And you and I got, I've been, I've been mind mapping in these last three weeks on some stuff for you and I to do because we'll talk. I want to show a graphic on the screen. This is from an IG page called first underscore responders underscore first. And it's a graphic and it has four pictures and there's four numbers for, or there's a number for each picture. And it's titled 2023 suicides year to date. There's a picture of 911 operator or the technical term is emergency medical dispatcher. There's a picture of a paramedic with a defibrillator. There's a picture of law enforcement and then there's a picture of firefighters. So I'm going to go in that order. 2, 6, 46, 11. 2. Two reported suicides for emergency medical 911. 
six reported suicides for EMS. They could be EMTs and or paramedics because all paramedics are EMTs, but not all paramedics. All paramedics are EMTs, but not all EMTs are paramedics. This is a license. I'm a paramedic. 46. 46 reported law enforcement officers have committed suicides so far this year. And then 11 firefighters have committed suicides for the year 2023 to this date. And the caption reads, <clears throat> absolutely heartbreaking. We all must do so much more to end this crisis affecting all of our first responders. This is from retired Sergeant Michael Sagru. And when I see this, when I see this picture, when I see this image of all the two, six, four, six, and 11 for the suicides year to date, it breaks my heart. What do you say about this? Well, first of all, not only does the number break my heart, but this is just what's reported. What's reported. That's why I said that. This is what's been reported as of July 7, 2023. Because those numbers are a lot higher. Just from with people that I've worked with and what I've known, what I've what I've known, um, those numbers are a lot higher. And it, I mean, that just speaks volumes to, you know, I like the fact that you that when I say I like the fact, the um, statistics showing the nine one one caller. Um, I've worked with a lot of individuals that take those calls, mm -hmm. and that per, you know, talk Same. about powerlessness. Right, you're on the other side of a call, getting this report of what's going down, and all you're left to do is take the information and sort of guide and navigate law enforcement officials, paramedics, whomever needs to get on the scene, and you're left with that phone call. That's right. Sometimes I don't know, you know, whether or not they get to hear because some of my patients have said to me that they didn't really get to hear the end result and what happened to the person, you know, at the end of all of that. Sometimes they learn about it right there on the call, right? So it's interesting to see that that number is only two suicides and not more than that. Um, but again, it just shows you all around. And, you know, nurses should be on there as well, because even with nurses, the suicide rate there is high as well. And you're looking at suicide before it, before it gets to suicide, guys, there is a dependency issue of substance abuse um, that's there as well. There's a mental health issue. There's a substance, substance abuse issue that our society is, growing more and more to normalize rather than look at that a little bit more closely. So we don't get to that place of suicide. Right. So I do believe that those numbers can go down um, as we continue to make, make sure we're having more conversations like this. And it's not just about just the statistics and what's happening. What are we going to do about it? How do we on a city level, a state level, a count, I mean, city, county, state level, national level, what are we going to do for our first responders across the board? You know, same to be true. You know, we don't have nurses on there. We don't have military officials on there. Look at what our military goes for our country, what they are also exposed to and what do they come home to? You know, and what kind of services do they have? And these young and men and women, I think you and I talked about this just before we got on the show today. All first responders really don't have a clue of what they're signing up for. You know, they may have had an idea if they grew up in a, in a family who had, you know, been had been serving in any one of those. Um, what's the word I'm looking for in, in, in that field? But they don't really know what they're getting into till they're in there. You're right. 
and then they really find out what's going on. And sometimes it's a little too late because you're already in there. You've already invested your time, right? Your training and all that other kind of stuff. So you go in one person and you go in with a set of ideas and you come out a completely different person. It changes you mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, you know, emotionally. Um, and I don't know, I just, I'm seeing more and more, a lot of people um, still struggling to seek the professional help that they need so they can find some sense of self again. Um, I think it's insane of how high our uh, substance abuse mental health rate is and the suicide rate is today. I think we should, those numbers should be lower, not more. And yes. I just think we as a people need to continue to do what we're doing um, and advocating and speaking up and finding a solution, not just giving the report like this person died, this person, this, this person, that. What are we doing to change the system that is broken, that is affecting everyone? In the last seven years, I've had two colleagues that I that I worked with uh, indirectly because we were never partners, but we worked for the same company, the private EMS service that I worked for. And one worked for the uh, St. Louis City Fire Department, Fire EMS. Uh, he was the man. Uh, so three actually. In the last seven years that I know of, one was suicide by a cop. Uh, he was an EMS worker. And then the other two were, uh, they were EMS. They they were all in EMS, but one worked for the fire department. And I just remember how when those stories came out about these individuals that committed suicide, these were people that were under 35. Like, I think under 30. And it just broke my heart. Like, it... it it literally broke my heart because I was like, you know, when we talk suicides, two things always bother me that I always talk to people about when it comes to being a first responder. I always say it for me, the hardest, two of the hardest things that I had to deal with was getting a call and didn't matter what time of day or night it was, showing up and finding out my patient or patients, or somebody that I know. Second thing is dealing with suicides. Of course, kids, you know, being traumatized. Mm -hmm. It's part of the course. But suicides, because I always think about suicides like you got to a point where you said nobody else gives a damn about your life status anymore. So it's a wrap. It's a wrap. And typically... When it comes to suicides, there's two calls you get. Those that had the ideation, they may have taken the 40 pills and then told somebody, and we got to them in time. They may start cutting, and we got a time to get it, you know, bleeding control or whatever, or whatever it was. Either we get them and they're alive, or I'm calling time of death. There is no middle ground. <clears throat> there's no middle ground when it comes to suicides, when it, when it comes to us responding to it. And I just remember on some of these calls, it's just like when I see them or know about them, I'm just like, man, you talking about the ones that I had to call time of death or time of death was called by another provider. They really believe in their heart and soul that this was the only answer that would work for them. And, you know, in addition, it speaks to this conversation that they didn't think they had a voice. 
And if they did speak up, no one was going to hear them, right? Um, and, and let me be clear so we don't have people, you know, calling you or trying to email me. Someone's suicide, we're not blaming anybody. This is not a blame Absolutely. game. No. It's about people for a, an array of reasons um, believing that they don't have a voice, believing that they don't matter, believing that what they have to say is going to fall on deaf ears, and believing that they're not going to be supported. Um, and, and and that there's a, there's a lot of history that it, that is that uh, precedes that act of suicide. And I speak of that because I can speak of that from experience, right? You know, in my testimony, and I shared with you, I have been there, and I did attempt. Um, and I, by the grace of God, woke up from this, from my overdose, not, not, not me calling and telling anybody what had happened to me. It was purely a God, an act of God that I am still alive today. And for me, it was a place of believing that I had lost. I had felt powerless. I had felt defeated. I believed that there was no way up. I believed that I could never get back up um, and and be successful and have a life and make something of myself. There's a lot that's going on there. That's a lot deeper that that's beyond what meets the eye. You know, a lot of people are very highly opinionated when someone commits suicide and want to talk about, you know, that they were just looking for attention and why would they do that? And why would they, how could they harm their family like that? And I always, this is something I've always said and I will continue to say it. Unless you have walked in someone's shoes, you have no business. You have no business passing judgment. Right. Individuals who have attempted suicide, that have died from suicide, died from a broken heart. Point That's blank, funny. plain and simple. They died from a broken heart. They were emotionally broken. They were emotionally disconnected, and somewhere along the lines, they either didn't know how to ask for help, they stopped asking for help, or didn't think that help was available to them, and they did what they did. Right. So. Right. What I do in therapy today and what I do in working with my clients is always creating a safe, non-judgmental space for them to speak their truth, whatever that is. Tell me whatever you need to tell me. There is no judgment here. Be able to share honestly and earnestly where you're at and what can we do together to help you get to the other side. We are living in a world that is too highly opinionated and judgmental and everybody wants to tell everybody what's right or wrong, who's who's to blame, let's point a finger, you know, and that's not what it's about. Everybody are we're all humans. We're all trying to survive in this world. We're all trying to to move forward in our lives. We're trying to be successful and we need to learn on how to come together. We need to learn on how to communicate more effectively. We need to learn to teach each other healthy coping skills on how to deal with our life stressors, how to deal with our emotions. There's so much that is that is involved in this process. Um, and that's why I've chosen to do what I do today um, as my way of giving back to others. So This is the Trigger Woman Talk podcast was sponsored by Spotify Podcasts. It's produced by my company, Pen Pinion Consultant Solutions, LLC. We have a special guest back, Natasha Khan, who deals, she's an educator on addiction. We're talking about this three-part series, Silence Speaks Volumes, part two. First part was her story, talking about her life, dealing with addiction, dealing with her aces, dealing with her trauma. Second part, which is what we're doing now, talks about identity. We're talking from a behind the scenes perspective on what first responders go through as they deal with calls and the call, the type of calls, 
the true crime related calls, the sexual based offenses calls, the domestic violence type of calls, the human and sex trafficking type calls. We're giving you a behind the scenes view on what you don't typically see from first or here and or here from a first responder. Both of us are not only first responders, we're clinicians. We're giving you a behind the scenes view on life as a first responder dealing with these traumatic issues. I want to do a wrap up here because we could talk all day and we might be expanding the series because I'm already on part four and a whole nother thing talking about ancestral <laughs> and generation. I'm about to put that out. Woo! Good Lord. I'm okay. here for it. I'm here for it. I want to close out by talking about two things real quick. The forensic interviewing that you do, how does that tie into what we're talking about? Um, it's, it's a technique. It is an approach in how to communicate with others. Again, creating a safe space where someone isn't going to feel like they're being judged or that they're in the wrong or that they've done something bad or they're going to be shamed for whatever they have to say. So that type of interviewing is just a, a, a skilled way on how to communicate effectively and again, creating, I can't say it enough, creating a safe space. Oftentimes, the reason why we are silenced, why we silence our voices, or why we believe that we couldn't speak up, most people are often afraid they're going to be judged, ridiculed. Um, they're going to have, they're going to feel shame for whatever they have to say, or that, that someone's going to blame them, or it's going to be their fault. It's always some sort of a negative belief behind often what silences our voices, right? So, Creating that safe space is super important so someone can say, okay, I can speak honestly and earnestly and it is what it is, right? And I'm all about solution. Like we're going to talk about it, but we're not just going to sit here and remain in that victim mode and keep talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. We're going to find a way together to be able to walk you through and move you from a place of being a victim to being a victor because you bring spirituality into this. And I know we'll touch on this another day. But everything that we go through in life happens for purpose. Nothing happens on accident. So everything that we experience, good, bad, and indifferent, it's not about why is it happening to me? It's what do I need to learn from this? So what can I learn from it that can help me grow mature and help me be a better version of myself? So um, hopefully that answers the question. That answers the question. <laughs> We're done with point two. I just want to thank you so much. I'm going to bring your information back up on the screen so the viewers can look at all the ways they can get in touch with you, Natasha. I want you to tell people that are not watching how they can get in touch with you. Mike is yours. Sure. <laughs> thank you. So I work with, I do a, a few different things. I'm a personal development coach and I'm also a marriage and family um, therapist. So you can, if you're a couple or a family that's looking for any type of um, healing um, within your family system, you can find me at the website www.collaborativehealingpartners.com. Um, and that will give you my full bio there and give you a description of all the varying services that my business partner and I provide. He's also a licensed clinician. And those are the services that we provide to our couples and our families. We also do individual counseling there as well. As a personal development coach, um, you can always 
reach out to me via email at empoweredvoices45 at gmail.com. I am in the process of working on my social media platform, so I don't have uh, much of those to give out to anyone, but you can reach out to me via email and or you can check me out on my podcast, which is called Getting to the Root of It. You can find that on YouTube, um, Google Play, and also Spotify. Sorry. <laughs> you can also find it on Spotify. So uh, those are the three different ways that you can reach out. So I hope that anyone that was listening today, I hope the information was um, beneficial, helpful. And if you need help, please know that we're here to support you. We're here to listen. And I'm happy to take a phone call and or chat with anyone any given day at any given time. I need to be on getting to the root. You know, you got to pencil me in to be on there. <laughs> I am I've actually been... working on the second season right now. The, the yes. one that we have here is the, it's season one, and I'm working on season two. So, yes, I'm definitely happy, happy to have you on the show, and we can explore, you know, what more we want to bring to the table so that our communities can um, really become more informed um, so that they could be motivated and inspired to start taking action in their own lives and or in their own community. And Natasha's podcast, Getting to the Root of It, says that Natasha shares her journey into the depths of addiction, finding recovery, and discovering her identity slash authentic self. Season one is available on YouTube. I'm going to have that link as well as her website link, which is Collaborative Healing Partners. I want to have you back for part three real soon because we always talk about modalities, right? And we're going to talk about seeking help. How do people, first responders and others, all the ways that you know and that you provide also to seek help dealing with addiction, identity issues, recovery? Because on your website for services, you offer you and your partner offer CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, counseling for anxiety, couples counseling, family counseling, LGBTQIA plus individual therapy, personal addiction counseling, and faith, faith-based counseling. We want to highlight all of those things, and I'll have the link for that website and your Getting to the Root website also in the show notes for this episode. Natasha Khan, I thank you so much from one first responder to the another you are such a blessing thank you for your service more importantly thank you for your sacrifice i told you i got you on my superhero wall of fame right did i show you the plaque you did not no you did not i, I got this from mrs lp this not all superheroes wear capes right I like all superheroes wear capes and it has the ms star in life now, i got the wall of fame that i that i got here in my office you're on that wall of fame because I believe that superheroes are not Marvel comic characters, not DC comic characters. They don't wear capes and got utility belts with all kind of gadgets and climb walls and explode stuff. Or I would like to. <laughs> look, don't look, don't get me started because I didn't say I didn't want it. I'm just saying I don't believe that that's available right now. For me, a superhero, because I've been called a superhero or a hero and all this stuff. I got clinical life-saving awards and all this stuff. Speaking of which, going back to what you said about the emergency medical dispatcher, I got four clinical life-saving awards, and these are specific on, I've saved many people, and I'm not being braggadocious. I'm just saying, you don't get a award for all saves that you do, certain categories that you got to, certain criteria that you got to meet. 
the four I've gotten that I've earned, everyone, not just me, won the award and my partner. It included the emergency medical dispatcher that took that call. Wow. It included the hospital personnel that worked on helping that patient once we got them in the hospital. And there's, I got pictures of me at one awards banquet that had me on stage. It was myself. It was the emergency medical 911 operator. It was the four clinicians that were in the hospital uh, that attended to that patient. And it was our operations manager. We were all in this picture. It's and a team it's effort. Fun. It's a team effort. And some of these awards banquets, they will actually bring the family member and sometimes they'll bring the patient up on the stage as a surprise. Man, every there's not a dry eye in the building when those things happen. Not a dry eye in the building. Tell that has got to be a beautiful moment. I got chill bumps right now. I don't even want to get started. <laughs> so, superheroes. You are a superhero because every superhero is a person to me and this is just me, that is doing something extraordinary, uh, ordinary person doing something extraordinary in extraordinary situations. Could be one or more. Your tenure speaks for itself. I don't even have to go. If y'all want to learn more about Natasha, look at her bio, Google her. Like I always tell people, Google me. You're going to find me all over. Natasha Khan, till next time, I want to wish you peace and blessings be upon you and your family forevermore. I got to do this missing person case. So if you want to stick around, because it's only going to take me a minute and a half, if that. We're going to jump into the missing person case, because we always do a missing person case at the end of every interview. And this missing person case is going to be talking about a young man who's been missing since 2020. He's a Native American or indigenous person. Amos Eagle Bear. This comes from the Charlie Project, one of our favorite sources. Amos Eagle Bear, been missing since May 1st, 2020 from Rosebud, South Dakota. Classified as missing, sex male, race, Native American. I'm just reading from the Charter Project's posting here. Don't come at me because I'm saying things that might not be PC. Age 29 years old, height and weight, 5'6", 180 pounds, distinguishing characteristics. Again, according to the Charter Project, Native American male, black hair, brown eyes. Eagle Bear has a tattoo of the letters N- B V on the side of his neck. Details of his disappearance. Eagle Bear was last seen in Rosebud, South Dakota on May 1st, 2020. He has never been heard from again. He may have traveled to the San Francisco, California area. Few details are available in this case. And it's actually N8V, not N. I don't have glasses on. It's the letters N as in Nancy, the letter, the number eight, and V as in Victor. That's tattooed on the side of his neck. If you have any information, good, bad, ugly, or indifferent about the whereabouts of Mr. Amos Eagle Bear, the investigating agency is the Rosebud Sioux Tribal Police Department at 605-856-2282. Again, the Rosebud Sioux Tribal Police Department would love to hear for, from you if you have any information about Amos Eagle Bear, 605-856-2282. 2282. You can also find some information about Mr. Bear uh, at the South Dakota Missing Persons link and the lost and missing in Indian country. Those links will be provided in this Charlie Project link that I want to provide in the show notes along with the contact information for Natasha Kine. And again, in closing, this is the Trigger Want to Talk podcast. We have uncomfortable conversations about four topics 
trafficking, human and sex trafficking, that is, true crime, domestic violence, sex-based offenses. Take a CPR first aid AD class because you may be in a situation where you need to be an immediate responder. And I always say it's not a matter of if, but when and where an emergency is going to happen. As my partner Doc says, we want you to be a by-doer instead of being a bystander. Thank you so much. And until next time, help you out.